Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello, welcome to this week's Book Shambles with Sarah Polly, which is going to be uh, great. I know that, actually, because obviously I've recorded it already. This is just a quick message, and uh, it's not a paid message, by the way, either. It's just something we thought that a lot of people who listen to this might like to know about, and that is that Bob Whitey, uh, who's uh, probably best known for Curb Your Enthusiasm, which he's won Emmys for, uh, but also made movies about the Marx Brothers and Lenny Bruce and W.C. Fields, has spent 39 years making a movie with Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, who became his friends during the making of the movie. And uh, it's a fantastic documentary, which I watched the other day, called Unstuck in Time. And it's going to be in cinemas, well, now, in fact. So here is a little clip of Unstuck in Time. And then we will return you to your normal programmes. Vonnegut was a prisoner of war in Germany, and he's been getting ready to write a book about it. Now he's done it. Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five was an instant hit. An anti-war novel that was searing, satirical, strange, and darkly funny. The protagonist of Slaughterhouse-Five, Billy Pilgrim, bounces around from time to time in his life. Listen, Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time. Billy has gone to sleep, a senile widower, and awakened on his wedding day. He's walked through a door in 1955 and come out another one in 1941. He's gone back through that door to find himself in 1963. He's seen his birth and his death many times, he says, and pays random visits to all the events in between. And the trips aren't necessarily fun. Unstuck in Time is Billy Pilgrim's status in the novel Slaughterhouse-Five, but it's also Kurt Vonnegut's status as the writer. I'd say you and I are about equally unstuck in time. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Apologies if you can hear a little bit of uh, buzzing in the background. That is one of 419 fans that are currently going in the Shambles office today because this intro is being recorded on the hottest day in British history. And if I turn the fans off simply to record this, there's a good chance I will pass out. So there you go. If you want to support the podcast so we can buy even more cooling devices for the office, you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles where you'll get lots of extra goodies, extended episodes each and every week. And as you may have seen on social media, we have just started work on our first feature-length documentary that will be coming out hopefully at the end of this year and there'll be lots of behind the scenes content bonus features all sorts of stuff from that documentary will be going up for patreon supporters so go and check that out uh we'll also be having on the cosmic shamble shop some exclusive pre-order deals for robin's new book bibliomaniac which is going to be out in october so keep an eye on our social media for that Don't forget to like, rate, review, five stars on Apple Podcasts and everywhere else for the Book Shambles podcast. And on today's episode, we're very excited to be joined by the Academy Award nominated screenwriter and actor and producer and director and author Sarah Polly to talk about her new book, Run Towards the Danger. So let's get to that now. Here is Robin and Sarah. (music) 
Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Today's guest has written what is currently my favourite book of 2022. It could still change. There are five and a half months to go. There's some close run things. My Monticello is is a most fantastic novel as well. And uh, though she's no longer with us, the collection of Cookie Muller's uh, essays as well that's recently come out, I think, in Canongate in the UK. They're, they're in the top three, but number one is uh, Sarah Polly's Run Towards Danger. Uh, and Sarah, as many of you will know, uh, was uh, an actor when she was a child and an actor as an adult as well and has also um, directed some uh, strikingly uh, moving films as well, tremendously empathetic movies, I think. And that's one of the things that I, I can honestly that the excitement of running to the bookshop to get this book the moment I found out it existed because I just knew it was going to be something wonderful and have this tremendous honesty and nothing of it has disappointed. So hello, Sarah. Hi, thank you for that lovely introduction. Well, I, do, I just, I really, I, I found the book so moving and so there, there there have been a few kind of memoirs of people who've had strange childhoods, you know, childhood, and and I do find, you know, that, that there are some in particular which are a brilliant book called, uh, called Lowborn by Kerry Hudson, the poet Lem Cisse, his his book and and your book um you say at the beginning you know this is a book that has had a very long gestation you know this is 20 years this is you know before you were uh, a, a mother probably almost before you were a director i, I presume as well you know the, yeah. the, these thoughts trying to so can you tell me a little bit about you know what has been what was the battle to find the correct the voice that you needed to express I mean, I dipped in and out of it for many years. So, you know, some of the essays I began when I was, you know, my late teens or early 20s and then didn't go back to for another 10 years. And then another 10 years went by and I went back to it. And I I think that um, these were all stories that I wanted to tell in some form or another. Some I thought might be books, some might maybe become fictionalized. I wasn't sure what form they would take. Um, And I think it really was, you know, this moment where I think what I've always wanted to do is write books. I mean, like that was the first thing I wanted to do when I was seven years old. And I, you know, as a child actor, I sort of eventually found this way to sort of parlay my passion for writing and telling stories into the medium that I knew and which was accessible to me, which was film. But there had always been lingering in my mind that the thing that I actually had wanted to do, I'd sort of become taken away from just life had taken me away from it. And, and there was a moment where I sort of resigned myself to the fact that I probably wouldn't write a book and that was okay. I have this amazing job where I get to tell stories on film. Um, but I think it was just this moment of going, well, really, like, am, am I not going to do the thing that I most want to do? And I started looking at these stories I'd been writing and realizing there was this connective tissue between them. Um, and that it wasn't like, you know, what I least wanted to write was, you know, um, a laundry list of traumas and disclosures. But what I was interested in was the connective tissue between these quite difficult stories was the recoveries. You know, there was the, there were these recoveries in these stories and this like moving through an experience that you've lugged along with you in a certain way and a certain narrative shape and feeling that narrative shape of that past story, story shift as I move through the present differently. And that became really interesting to me, that relationship and dialogue between the past and the present and the way they were speaking to each other. 
See, that's what I found. That, that That's one of the first lines that I underlined. I underlined books. I know some people who listen to this think it's a terrible thing to do, but I do. I have a pencil or a marker. And it was that changing the, the way that uh, I, I won't do a direct quote, but as you were basically just saying there, you, here we are molded by the past, but the past changes the way it travels through us as we grow older as well. And it's certainly something I found when the, the book that I suppose is, is, is the most autobiographical that, I, that I've written when I was dealing with some stuff that happened when I was three years old. And I realized that I could not have written that possibly until I was 44 years old. Uh, yeah. And it's, and because the story changes and moves, right? Like that's the thing is I think it, it's so crucially important to have a narrative around what happened to us in our past, because often if we don't have our own, it's shaped by others and more powerful figures in our life or people that um, had more agency than we did. And I think there's a sort of moving away from helplessness that's involved in creating a narrative arc or finding words to articulate what a story was. But then I think hopefully there's this, you know, chance for that to not stay static and for that story to change as we change and the meaning of it in our lives and the power of it in our lives for that to change. And I think um, it's possible to just cling on too hard. I certainly did for many years to like what a story meant and, you know, who is the villain in this story in my life and who is the hero and, to just allow that, I think again, that can be a really important thing to go through, but it's, it's a, I'm finding it a more interesting life to let that be complicated. See, I got, I got the sense that I, I think there's a variety. D different human beings have a different amount of this, which is that thing that some people are really able to live in the moment and other people, there is always the other version of you or not even other version of you. There is a constant monitoring of what is going on, a constant kind of director who is aware of your experiences. And so the analytical mind of us. And I got that sense. I mean, even in the first chapter, when you when you write about, you know, playing Alice and the battles to to, to be in, in, in uh, a production about Alice in Wonderland, that you've always had a, that that other voice is watching you all the time. Those other eyes are watching you. Is, yeah. is, is, is that true? Yeah, I think that's very true that there's always, um, yeah, there's always the person aware of the, the story being created as it's being created. But I, I kind of try to make an effort towards being more in the moment. Like I've, I, you know, I try to meditate every day. I try to do a lot of things to bring me back into the present. I think it's, I also find it really enjoyable to have both, to have both the experience and the commentary on the experience. So I don't want to completely negate that, but I, it's nice to have a little bit of choice occasionally to drop in to the moment you're living as opposed to constantly narrating it. Cause you, I mean that, that experience of, of playing Alice, which deals with so many different things, including, you know, a guy who appears to be someone on, on the, the team who, well, it's, it's kind of a, a potential abuser. Uh, also, the people who are basically saying, you know, just kind of get on with it, you know, that your mind is still in the showbiz mind as well. It doesn't matter that I've got these struggles, I have to get on. You know, all of those things, both in the Alice yeah. stories and the Anne of Avonlea stories as well, where you are being perpetually, people are trying to mould you or control you. And how much now do you think, you know, if I read, reading the, those chapters now, I get a sense that you were very aware of that at the time. Uh, even though you weren't able to break out from it. But how much do you think that is you you as a human being now compared to the child? Do, do you think you were fully aware at that point? I think I was aware of a lot at that point, but I think it's there are more layers have been added on as I get older and like there's more analysis and there's more of like a broader context for what I was experiencing. But I certainly feel like I was aware. Um, I was aware 
acutely aware of other people's kind of motivations and the kind of wanting things for me or needing me to fulfill things for them or expecting me to be a certain way. I think the difference in being that young was I didn't feel any sense of agency or that I could assert a different self or a way of being, that it wasn't my job or my role to like change. It's funny, my seven-year-old said something the other day that I really loved where we, we were driving on the highway and she said, you're going you're going a bit over the speed limit. And I said, well, you have to, you have to go with the flow. And, and I said, but you could change the flow. Yeah, <laughs> and I, yeah. I was like, right. And that's like, that's what you don't get when you're younger or she, I mean, she does, but I didn't get that when I was younger is that like, it, there is actually like a place for you to shift the course of a conversation or to shift the course of events. And you just, when I was a kid, I didn't feel that agency. Um, I felt like I had to kind of conform to the expectations of this very adult world and um i mean that's what's so great at the end of alice and wonder alice looking at where she just pulls the tablecloth off and goes i can't take this anymore um and i think that's what we kind of looking back on a helpless childhood you sort of wish you could have done you know it's just actually stopped something because that was when i was reading this book while i was in la and i happened to see eric idol so we got talking about it and, oh wow uh, and that i mean i think a lot of people in the uk may well know that passage you know, particularly well because it was was in the Guardian as well, serialised. But your yeah. experience of 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 Baron Munchausen, you know, the Terry Gilliam film, is is to me quite uh, is is a terrifying. I mean, it's it reminded me of I was chatting to a friend of mine who's been a producer at, at a TV company for many many years, and she said in the nineteen nineties when I started, we were always told it doesn't really matter what the talent do, you've got to remember they're the talent. Yeah, and it seems that th it really is. This is what makes this such a kind of current book. Is it is in the, it only seems to me in the last ten years, almost five years, that to start to challenge these myths, to challenge the fact that Terry Gilliam may be a genius of a director who's made some films that I absolutely adore, but the cost of those films, the possible cost of those films, especially to eight-year-old you, seems yeah. to me to be not a kind of tenable thing. No, and maybe unnecessary to make a great film too. Like that's the other thing is I don't know that, um, I don't know that you need to pe put people through unimaginable suffering to make a great film. Like I, I think I, he's a genius. He could make those films, you know, without, you know, the hardship that so many people went through. I'm convinced he could have. Like he's, um, he's brilliant. And I mean, I love his films too, and I'll, I'll continue to love his films. And I, it's funny because like this whole notion, I keep getting asked this question about separating the art from the artist and should we do it blah, blah blah I'm like I don't know like you know it's like these are the things people have to give to the world like let's take them you know so what if we don't like what they say or what they do like like why would we why would we then like not take the good thing that they did or you know I, I feel like I just want to suck that up especially if they're problematic in all kinds of other ways like I can't figure out why we would trash or throw out work that's meaningful to us and give that person that power and agency for us to not enjoy their work like that doesn't make sense to me I think with Terry like I don't I mean I've worked with uh people I would consider a lot worse as human beings like I don't think of him as um you know at least on set in those days as like a malicious malevolent presence at all I just think there's a lack of responsibility taken and a lack of an account of accountability. But he's not in my mind like this fairy tale villain. He's just like somebody who didn't get reined in as he should have. And it is what you're talking about, this cult of the artist being able to behave in any way 
they need to to create work. But I think the the problem in that argument is the idea that you need to behave anyway to create work. I, I don't actually think um, like an artistic strength is that weak, you know, that it needs a whole bunch of bad behavior around it to exist. Like, I just think that's something we mythologize because it's a more interesting story. But I, I just think um, there shouldn't be that expectation. I remember somebody saying to me once, there was, I was someone who was sort of really um, trying to control something I was doing on stage once I was presenting awards or something. And there was this awards producer was giving me too much advice and it was driving me crazy. And I said to um, an actor friend of mine, this is really bothering me. And she said, will you just say to them, you know, I'm the artist here, so you can just fuck off. And I just thought, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and actually, like, it's not okay. Like, that, it, there was something about that that was speaking to this exact issue of that we should just be in this hallowed, protected space, allowed to smash around whatever we want as long as we make something good. And yeah, I think it's just led to to so many problems. And you know, Terry's obviously a complicated figure. He's got, got all kinds of very loud positions right now on things that you know make me kind of sad because I think you know his words can be harmful in a time where it's not like there are battles that have yet been won in terms of equality with race and gender and he's sort of smashing around as though these things are somehow oppressing him I think it's depressing but again like there's something just childlike about him like he's saying those things out loud he's making a target of himself in this kind of childlike way that a lot of people wouldn't and I'm I sort of appreciate that I sort of appreciate the honesty and you know the vulnerability that comes with taking a really unpopular position, even though I find the position itself pretty upsetting and maybe toxic. Yeah, there's a couple of pythons that are quite useful. As a 53-year-old man, uh, you know, looking at a possible destiny, there are two <laughs> of them at least where I kind of go, just make sure that I am placed in the attic at this point before I turn into that kind of human being. Because it is. Well, you uh, just can't figure out where they're living. Like, are, they're living in some world where they think everything's been won and they have become oppressed. Like, I, I can't figure out, you know what I mean? Like, what's actually happened to them tangibly that makes them think that? It's fascinating. Well, it's that thing, isn't it? It's, it's, it's the basically the confusion between a loss of privilege being a loss of rights. Uh -huh. And I think, you know, having just been out in the US and been out there the week of seeing, you know, the repeal of Roe versus Wade, uh -huh. And then, and then I got chatting to a waiter in Houston who who was who was black and gay, and and he he's I said, oh my god, if Trump doesn't go down for what's happened in the storming of the Capitol, then it's like that's the end of democracy. He went, it's gone, it's over. Yeah, he said, and they'll, they'll be coming for me next. And I looked at the the Attorney General of Texas is basically looking at what he can repeal to make you know to to remove LGBT rights and stuff like that. And yeah. it is that's what I find so strange when I see people sometimes of my age as well thinking yeah. that we're and it's been going on in the UK in the press and I'm sure you know e even the Canadian press probably has some of those people who are those those kind of I think you'll find I'm the real victim here <laughs> uh you know that that just people who are so busy self-pitying they can't pity anyone else yeah. there's no room to look at anyone else because all they can see is the splinter in their finger and uh you know not the burning down of the orphanage or whatever it might be <laughs> well here's the, the other thing is it's like you know it's that they're in such a bubble I mean the the, the sort of progressive comments they're hearing at their little dinner parties is not it's not the whole world and it's not like you know the entire world isn't that those few little people at your dinner party who you think are have gone too far with progressive politics like don't worry like they're not even they're not close to being in charge like 
the world's burning down. Like we're going way backwards. You know, things are on your side, white straight man. Like, like, fret not. So there's just something strange about, yeah, the sense of oppression around it, um, which I guess has to do with what you can say and what you can't say. And, you know, no one's saying you can't say anything, but there is sort of a, a human decency aspect to just figuring out, you know, is what I'm saying causing harm or not to people who are already feeling a lot of harm? Like that just seems like a sort of common sense thing that's being asked of people. Um, but the the reaction to it is so intense. It's, anyway, I just find it kind of interesting. It just seems a little bit hysterical. Well, that's why I think, again, why your book, it was the perfect time for me to be reading it. I just kind of ended up in a in a, in a kind of uh, a, a, a short battle with, over edgy comedy and stuff like that uh, with some people. Uh, uh-huh. And why punching down is not a good thing for, for, for comedy or for culture as a whole. If people, yeah, the moment yeah. they leave their door, already are having to expect more shit before you open your mouth. If the thing yeah. that you are before you even offer an opinion already means that you're more likely to be brutalized verbally physically whatever then what don't keep punching those people there's loads of people to to, and and, you know that's what how I feel about anyway yeah and it's also like a lack of exposure too like I've had a few conversations lately with people I considered pretty progressive just talking about how concerned they are about you know trans rights and the conversation about transphobia taking over and obliterating the bigger, more important issues like, you know, women's rights and, you know, and black rights. And we should not be talking so much about trans issues. Um, And I just thought like, it's, it's, it's strange. Like all, all you have to do is love a trans person for that feeling to change. Right. You know what I mean? Like if this feels like really marginal to you and like really unimportant and compromising a whole bunch of other bigger, more important issues, I think all it means is that you don't have a trans person in your life that you love because otherwise it wouldn't be this academic small thing. It suddenly is a very big thing to be talking about the erasure of someone's rights or participation in a conversation. Like, so it's always to me, like, I always wonder like who, who do people have in their life? You know, like how many um, people that don't look like you and come from the same like ethnic and economic background you have in your life that it's so comfortable to dismiss you know, how much noise people might be making or how much um, people might be fighting for something that seems ridiculous to you. So it's just, anyway, I've just had in a few conversations lately where this stuff about trans stuff has come up and I just thought, I think the missing link here is you just don't, you don't know any trans people and you don't love any trans people and it would make it, too, it's too bad you don't have the imagination to not need that <laughs> to support another group's rights. But all you clearly would need is just some, human contact to understand like how upsetting it is that we would be even considering the erasure of a very marginalized group of people in any conversation it seems it's it's depressing isn't it when the old divide and conquer still works which is don't you know the the actual main structure which oppresses an enormous number of people still gets away with it because what it'll do is it'll say let's take that group and let's turn that group against that group and so we're all in it's like I was chatting to a friend of mine whose uh whose brother is a trans man and and she just went I'm so glad he doesn't live in England I'm so glad because and and that you know and she genuinely you know more than disheartened disturbed by the fact she thought oh yeah my brother just he couldn't live here now and that where does he live I'm curious he's in Germany and that's better 
Yeah, and that's. I mean, I talk to feminist friends of mine in Australia, and they keep saying, "What's going on? I don't understand what's going on." You know, there's 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 certain groups that you know that 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 I talk to, and they say, "I I don't quite understand how this is being." stirred up and become such an incendiary issue as you said as well and if you if you know people and uh and we've seen it all in the uk i think with this is where we get into trouble now and this is where we'll start to get because that's immediately happens as well everything is shut down very very quickly has been but but to me clause 28 which was to remove the right to uh, as it was called promote homosexuality in schools uh, which literally meant that suddenly teachers if they were gay would have to kind of keep it quiet and if people children had questions about you know sexuality then that was the point that and, and I've certainly spoken to younger people who say they felt that had a great effect on their schooling and to me yeah. it feels like the, the same old arguments think about yeah. the children it's always think oh what if children find out about being gay they'll all become gay <laughs> you know all of that it yeah. seems to be the same same thing but I just find yeah the d- division cultural division is uh still so potent isn't it well, yeah, and the thing you're talking about, just weaponizing one group against another is what I find sort of most disturbing, this idea that, you know, this group trying to assert their rights will somehow compromise this other group trying to assert their rights. Like, it's like, you know, it's all together now. <laughs> it's a very scary time. Um, I don't think it's like a time to go, like, this group is going to make our fight inconvenient, so let's make sure they're not part of it and that they don't get included in the language of it. It's just, um, yeah, kind of nerve-wracking. But... On the other hand, it's like, I don't, like, I, I do think there's room for, like, a, a really nuanced conversation that's really hard to have on social media and really hard to time, have in a time of crisis. Um, where, like, I do actually, I'm not willing to, like, deny myself the the only good thing some of these people put out to the world. You know, like, I will read and watch the work of people who have said terrible things because I want to consume what what little good they were able to put out there while they were destroying things on the other side so I do feel like um yeah there's definitely room I think for a more nuanced conversation everywhere it's just really hard to have when you know when we're in it feels like everything's crumbling and you sort of get the sort of panicky responses and you get how things are getting more and more extreme and polarized Hello, sorry to disturb the conversation. Just to say, you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle-tattle that dropped out of our mouth. I I wondered if you, in in terms of when you started, I mean, I know obviously it's had many starts, but, but were there other books you'd read already? Were there other stories that started to make you go, I need to tell my story as well because this story has been useful to me? I was thinking of, because you do talk about child actors. I thought it was very interesting when you said you've met very... I talked to, do you know Cindy Hines at all? She was a, no. a, probably before you, she was a, a, a child actor and she was in David Cronenberg's The Brood. Uh, oh, okay. She's, she's the small child who's terrorised by these strange tumour kind of creatures. And I interviewed her a while back and I thought, God, what would that be like? It's the most disturbing film. And she said, we had a brilliant time. And it sounds like David Cronenberg was great. That he was like, we had so much fun. And I watch it and you think, this looks so much like a child being terrorised. And yet everything was fun. And then she did another horror film where basically at one point she had to be like, she's eight or nine years old when she's doing this. She's being hanged in a noose. And it's really tight and stuff. 
and she's in tears. And it was like, and she told me the antithesis oh, of, horrible. again, Cronenberg's empathy. Cronenberg's yeah. like kind of, yeah, you, I've got to deal with this really carefully because this is kind of, so it's got to be fun. And and then she said, oh, yeah, this other. And he's also like on set, like he, I've worked with him and he is absolutely calm all the time. Like there's not one moment where he seems slightly stressed. Like he he's reading Auto Trader. And he's behind the monitor and you're rolling and then there's slate and then on the word and before action, I'll go and action. And it's like on the D, the auto trader gets folded and he looks at the monitor like that's where you are when you're on his. It's so chilled, like you're basically in his living room while he's like sipping his morning coffee and you're, you happen to be making a movie and he's so unneurotic. So I can imagine for a kid that would be a really good place to be, like a really calm place to be. And I, I mean, is it, I think it's hard to create um, a perfect environment for a kid on a set. Like I've tried to do it as a kind of experiment. Like I made a film this year and there was a, there was a small part for a, a child, a couple of child actors. And then there are a lot of background performer kids. So as you can imagine, I was neurotically spending crazy amounts of time figuring out how do I make this a good experience for a kid, given my experiences on sets and the fact that I don't actually think kids should be here in the first place. Um, and we did a pretty good job, but what I realized is you just can't control for everything. So I know that when they were on my set, they were basically okay. I think there were a couple of really uncomfortable moments. I think I caught them and we stopped stuff when things were, were even a little bit uncomfortable, like when kids were too hot or when kids were getting bored, like we dealt with it. Um, but what I realized, like, I don't know what it was like for them at base camp. I don't know what it was like with those ADs. I don't know what it was like in wardrobe. I don't know what it's hair and makeup. I mean, I hired all the people I thought would be best, who I've known for a really long time. But I can't, on a set of hundreds of people who are not trained to be amongst children, like, or, tr or trained to be early childhood educators, you know, those kids came into a lot of contact with people in a professional environment. I have no idea, actually, if it was okay or not. So I think what I've sort of realized is, there isn't really a fail safe way to do this. Like the truth is it's a professional environment with a lot of pressure and stress and money being spent every minute. Um, people aren't at their best. They're generally at their most stressed. Like, is it a good environment for a kid period? I don't know. I'm really lost with that. And it's funny because like my own kids were background performers in my film because my oldest kid, as I talk about the book really wants to be a child actor. It's like this terrible, this terrible karmic joke. Um, and so the only way they could come visit me on set because of COVID rules were if they were in it. Like that was the only technical way I could get them on set. So they were background performers for a few days. And it was really interesting experience for me because like there, we did have a couple of complicated shots when they were there, like a crane shot and we were losing the light and there was a lot of stress. And like, you know, one of my kids was like goofing off a lot and like we kept having to redo this crane shot. And I, I could feel my internal temperature kind of rising. And I thought, oh my God, you're so lucky I was traumatized as a child on sets because I would be really upset with you. <laughs> you are so lucky <laughs> that I've had to be in therapy for decades because of being traumatized for complicated crane shots going wrong. But um, like, you know, I didn't, I kept my cool, it was fine. But I, I kind of got it that in that moment, I think it's just really hard to have kids on a set and be able to treat them the way they deserve to be treated. I think there are just so many other like pressures and stresses that they can't possibly be made the priority no matter how hard you try. 
Um, so yeah, I had a little moment where I thought of Terry. <laughs> I was it like, is yeah, int- it could be hard. Yeah, thinking of those directors, I, I think of Carol Reed, who I was always told was a great director of children. You know, he did Oliver the musical, and he did a film called The Fallen Idol, and he was, yeah, and both of them have incredible performances by but they're also the central character so that in another way also means he could focus i imagine once you've got kind of you're not the central character as well and you just want to get the shot yeah then it's tricky it's tricky it's tricky i just don't think i mean we don't let kids into other professional environments so i don't know why this one like we sort of know how corrupted and strange the film industry is i i mean i don't know what the solution is like i don't think you can't I don't think it's possible to not have kids in films ever, but I do think there should be limits on how much a kid can work. Like Mm -hmm. I know a six year old right now who's working like back to back to back to back and not going to school. And I don't think that's good. You know, like I just think like there should be limits on how much, and I think there should be way more oversight. Like I basically think there should be someone from the union who has really intense training and is very good at stepping in front of the people in power and stopping things on set with a kid at all times. So someone who's not paid for by production, certainly not a parent. It's too much pressure for parents in an environment they don't know to like shut down a production. Um, and it certainly shouldn't be left up to the producers and director to, to figure out what's okay and what isn't. I, I just think there should be a union rep on set at all times, anytime there's a child on a set. Well, that's again reminding me of another Cronenberg movie, The Map to the Stars, which- uh, Oh yeah. You... I haven't seen it actually. It's the one I haven't seen. It's, oh, the child actor stuff in that is, and Julianne Moore. It's, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Julianne Moore anyway, but it's this incredible performance. But yeah, it's it's deeply disturbing in terms of the uh, the, the the child actor stuff in exactly okay. the way that David Cronenberg manages to go into our uh, our, our minds. I, I wanted to. You also you tell a lovely story. Well, I want to. I really wanted to talk about Ian Home as well because I thought that was a lovely part of the book, which was and a nice bit of synchronicity because I'd just been reading some interviews with Dennis Potter, and then you brought up Dream child mm-hmm. which as far as I remember he wrote the screenplay for and then you talk did, about the yeah. fact that you have this thing where you know you work with Ian Holm in uh in, in Sweet Hereafter and Dream Child had been you know you'd been you'd watched that many times with him there as, as Dodgson as Lewis Carroll and he yeah. seems to have had a very interesting again that his psychology seems to have been quite important it was an, I it was there were just so many strange dovetails with that story so having been in the play of Alice having had this nervous breakdown around stage fright when I was 15 um, and then meeting and then this obsession that my dad had with Alice Through the Looking Glass and Alice in Wonderland and the relationship between Charles Dodgson and Alice Liddell. And so we had watched many times Dream Child, which is about that story between Charles Dodgson and Alice Liddell and their relationship to each other, which was very, very complex. Um, and so, yeah, Ian had played Charles Dodgson, so I'd seen this performance millions of times. Um, and then I worked with him as a teenager and on The Sweet Hereafter, and I remember going out for dinner with him and telling him my story of stage fright. The reason I told it to him was I had never, t- I'd, I think I'd only told one or two people maybe. I was still a story I was deeply ashamed of that I had basically faked all of this back pain to get out of this play when I was 15 because I was so terrified to go on stage every night. Um, and just had this debilitating stage fright that I was very ashamed of and wouldn't tell anyone about. And then going out for dinner with him and like realizing that, you know, his story of stage fright of, you know, kind of having that breakdown when he was doing the Iceman Cometh and having to leave the run and he walked off stage in the middle of a play. And, you know, he sort of describing that experience to me, but it was, it was a strange echo because 
had been playing Alice. And for him, for me, he was always Charles Dodgson or Lewis Carroll. And so it was him sort of telling me this story. It was just the number of strange sort of in and out of the fictions was was almost hard to keep track of. But he was he was a huge influence on me. Like he was um I acting with him was the first time I understood that acting could be really interesting and like a worthwhile thing to do. Like just that having that intense connection where he would be looking at me and if I did something off camera, his entire performance would change around what I had done. And realizing like that intimacy and that human connection you have with another actor, how um it's just so um intense and precise and shiny and like so out of this world when an actor's really looking at you and you're really looking at them and you're deeply affecting what the other person does and you're sort of out of your choices. Um I think for me that was like, oh God, actually maybe I like this thing that I've been trying to escape my whole life. Um he was just and he was very, very kind to me and he would do things like I remember there's this one scene in the street after where I give like this deposition that's really pivotal and it's very emotional. And he's actually my enemy in the scene, but he's sitting beside me and I'm giving this deposition that actually destroys his case as a lawyer. And he's sitting beside me. And I did the first take and there was something about it that I just wasn't connected to. And I didn't know what was wrong, um, but I could feel it. I didn't say anything, but I was sort of staring off his face thinking a lot after that first take. And so was everybody. And he just suddenly whispered to me, do you want to hold my hand under the table? And I did. And it was actually like, the way I got to the performance that I ended up being really happy with was just this, this feeling of human connection, even though he was my enemy in the scene, there was this sense of like a connection with another person that allowed me to safely go into territory that was really, really hard. And just to have that instinct and that intuition to offer that in that moment was just, um, yeah, he was just very, very present and, and fascinated, like really delighted in people, like loved meeting people he had no snobbery whatsoever. Like he would just, he'd be thrilled. He'd tell you about someone he'd just met, you know, you know, it, you know, maybe it was like a crew member or maybe it was like one of the other actresses. He'd just tell you about the person as though he'd just met a magical creature. They're just sort of perpetually delighted by people. It was just such a great thing to encounter as a very cynical teenager. That's what I love is that there's certain actors, Ian Holm being one of them, John Hurt being another, which I can't imagine that they were not, deeply human one yeah. because I and I'm sure I can be proved wrong I'm sure there's many but there's a certain kind of humanity that I see on screen that I find very hard to believe can be captured merely yeah. by acting it and the, and I think pretty much every actor I've met who I've I've admired for being able to do that to me I've not been disappointed by Interesting. they have but you probably know of someone that I'll, I'll you know, afterwards when well, we stop of course this, I'll tell you the my, person who I can't I'm racking tell you. my brain to prove you wrong, but I think that might be, oh, I can say, I, I can actually think of a couple of people, but I won't name them. It's going to make you so sad. It's going to make you so sad, but it's good because I think you're getting too positive. So, you know, I think oh, well, that's good. good for you. We just, just smashed apart any kind of... <laughs> Oh well, that that that, that that ends the podcast because I need to find this out immediately. No, it doesn't. The um, I I wondered what your the reaction has been. I, I'm not sure how long the books because as I said, I bought it in Canada and I think it'd been out a few. It, it did come out this year. I know it came out this year in the UK, yeah. but I wondered how long it's been out for in Canada. It's been out since March. Oh, okay. Um, so here, yeah. So what in terms of reactions? Because there are some wonderful moments, sad moments where certain people that you basically 
they get the permission to speak because you've said something out aloud. And and I think that also seems to happen to you sometimes, you know, that conversation where, you know, it's what, what we need to find all the time is uh, all those secret hidden things that you think are not meant to be said out aloud or behaviour you're not meant to have on set. Or I mean, I love that mm. story about, is it Jack Van Der Meel? I can't, I, I'm terrible. Yeah, Jack Van Der Meel, yeah. Yeah, I just thought that description of what happened in, can you, can you tell us about yeah. that? Yeah. I, I So this was an amazing experience I had as an actor, which was on this movie called Mr. Nobody. And Jacko has this film set that is basically, you know, it's a utopian film set. Like he's worked with all of his collaborators forever. The kids are all kind of drop in and out of set. Like the teenagers are usually hanging out and learning a job. Every Friday, another department, it's their job to host the party. So it's like, you know, the third department's, you know, turn to host the party. It's, this crazy set pieces that you're you know, having the party in, you know, it's a sound team. There's amazing music. Like it was just, it was such a summer camp kind of collective feeling. And there was this moment where, and he just extended extreme empathy and presence to everyone in the film. And there was this moment where I'm supposed to be sitting in a car and um, with uh, Jared Leto's character. And there's this, I guess it's a car accident and to shoot sort of our angle on it, they had this sort of um, flame that was going to kind of come and lick the, the windshield. Um, and while they were shooting on us and they were also going to be in the car. So the cinematographer and Jacko were also going to be in the car. So it wasn't just like putting us in this situation. Um, and they wanted to show it to us first before we got in, which again, that's not something that happened to me on the Avengers of Bearman show. And I never knew what was coming at me. If they were explosives, I knew they were coming, but I never saw them before they came at me. Um, and so they said, let's show it to you and make sure you're comfortable with it. And and they showed me and I could see like there are a few people sitting in the car at the time. It was fine. Um, but it scared the crap out of me because I just had so much terror around special effects on film since being a kid and having them go wrong or be sort of not what I thought they were going to be and terrifying. So I was terrified and um, I said, okay. And Jacko looked at me and said, you don't look okay. And I said, well, I, I, I'm not, I, I'm terrified, but like, that's my problem um, because I know you're going to be there too. And I've just seen it and I know it's safe. Um, and he looked at me and said, I don't know. You don't look okay. And I was like, you know, you're all fine with it. I don't want to be the one who's not fine with it. And he just looked at me and said, yeah, but we weren't in the Adventures of Bram Munchaus when we were eight, so you're not doing this. And he sort of put his arm around me and just walked me away and just said, I'll find another way to shoot it. It's not worth it. It's like, it's a movie. I'm not, I'm not going to, like, contribute to some trauma that you had when you were a kid, and this is no problem at all. And it, it did feel, you know, when you get to be lucky enough to have an experience like that, that's in exactly the same arena in which you took punches when you were kind of helpless and young, and then someone kind of behaves differently and you're sort of walked out of the arena like that it it did feel like something around those memories and the way they had haunted me and the hold they had over me just kind of faded like it's still there it's still part of my life that stuff but it doesn't have a hold on me in the same way like it was an I mean it's I don't love the word healing but it absolutely was um he just really uh you know it's just amazing when someone can show you a different path that things can be different. Um, and yeah, that was an amazing experience. Cause you know, like I had gone to the hospital a few times on Roman Munchausen. I had 
you know, had explosives going off very close to me. Um, I'd had to have my heart monitored. Like there were really scary things that happened that had stayed with me for a really long time. And I just thought that stuff doesn't go away. The way you feel about that doesn't go away, but it turns out it can shift and it can change. And, and working with someone as compassionate as Jacko, um, who I think is equally brilliant, um, that it did shift something for me that was really profound. I just love that thing where he, he said that, you know, hopefully some of the audience will, you know, will stay with them for a while, this film. But for yeah. us, this is something forever. This is our experience. You know, and I thought that yeah. was a really good, because I think, as you said earlier on as well, there, there is this belief, you know, with, I think it's very easy to fall into the myth that everything must be sacrificed for art. If you're serious yeah. about your art, you don't go to your dad's funeral if it clashes with, you know what I mean? It's that yeah. kind of thing. You you don't, uh, I, I remember reading an autobiography of a comedian, uh, which was called Must the Show Go On, which is a nice kind of play on words. And and he talked about the fact that, you know, he looks back and he, his comedy double act partner who suddenly died of a heart attack, two days later, he's back on stage rehearsing with someone else for this pantomime oh. they're doing. And he looks back now and he thinks, why did I... What because yeah. that's what it was meant to be done, and and in filmmaking and in the music industry, I mean, the, some of the things that you hear people were made to do during the worst times. Yeah. Because otherwise, you're not a serious artist. You yeah. Know, that's... But it's like you're also yeah you're human and you're living a life, and then that becomes part of what you make, and so it's like you also have to make the right choices, or at least try to, because that is ultimately become it becomes the material you're working with, and it does find it. You can kind of see it in people's work, you know, like you can, I feel like you can kind of feel that those edges moving into work that used to be better, you know, before they were making those kinds of compromises. I don't know. I feel like, um, yeah, that was a really pivotal thing he said, just, you know, maybe if this movie works, it'll affect a few people for a few days, but this experience will be part of us forever. And so that has, that has to be the most important thing. And I, I, I really lived it the last film I directed, I just decided like the experience of us working here is going to be the most important thing. And if, you know, I think people got very tired of the announcements around safety. Like if there is anything that makes anyone mildly uncomfortable, you will be doing me a huge service by shutting down production. <laughs> it was like, we get it. We get it. We're all living inside your childhood trauma. We'll shut down production just for fun just to make you feel better. Um, but, but I do feel like we did put a lot of emphasis on just, you know, how people were doing and the experience of it and making sure that it was fun. And, and I don't think we made less of a movie for it. I mean, I'm not saying the movie's good, but you know, if it, if it isn't good, it's not because, we didn't have a good time making it. It's like, you know. No least. one looks internally damaged and trying to hide that fact in this particular scene. What a great tragedy, they'll <laughs> say. There's something wrong with that. I, none of the actors were even singed. You know, this yeah. is, uh, it's, what is about that? So, so when is the next film out? We should just briefly um, mention that. So it's out, I think, in the fall or late fall. Um, and it's called Women Talking. And it's based on a Miriam Taves book. Um but yeah, there was a really, so there's, this is a really interesting thing. My, my husband, there's like this philosophy that I took into making this film that I've decided I'm going to take into everything I do. It's going to be unpopular. It's not going to be, it's not going to sell any books, but I think um, he was given this advice by someone really wise close to him when he was working on his dissertation and his dissertation was taking a really long time. And David's like a perfectionist and he's always done really well academically. And he was writing his, dissertation in law and it was very complex and very long and at some point someone said to him give 80 percent 
and he gave 80%. And it was much, much better than what he would have produced if had he given 100%. In fact, it did very, very well. Um, and it was sort of this amazing eye-opening thing because he's a perfectionist and he's always sort of grinding himself and making things perfect. And so I took that into my book and my film. And I just realized like, it, I guess you have to sort of calibrate it to who you are. I mean, if you're somebody who like doesn't care that much or work very hard, maybe 80% is not so good. Maybe you should do for 100. But if you're somebody who's like kind of pushing yourself and nothing's ever good enough and you need to like make things matter, I think 80% is a really good rule because I think what it gives you, the, the other 20% I think goes back into your like basic humanity <laughs> and ability to live a life, which I think feeds the work. So that's like my new, my new mantra is 80%. And I gave 80% on that film and I like it way better than the films I made giving a hundred percent. So there we, we, we end there with your, your birth now as a motivational speaker. Uh, <laughs> just give less, give a little bit less. Little the, uh, people have been waiting for that motivational speaker for so long. Sarah, thank you so much for joining thank us. Run Towards so the much. Danger is uh, out now uh, across the world. And uh, as I said, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic book. There was so much more. I wanted to ask you loads of other stuff, but there's, uh, they, you can read the book and find out everything about it. That's, that's your job as, 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 as listeners and and, uh, and I believe you will enjoy it a great deal. Uh, thank you very much for everyone who supports us via uh, all of the, the different things we do at Cosmic Shambles. Um, and uh, if you want to financially support us, go to Cosmic Shambles and you'll find out how you can do that as well. But don't worry if you don't either. It's fine. It's fine. We just like making stuff. Thanks very much. <laughs> You're thank giving you, 80% with that pitch. You gave 80% I really, with financial pitch. I think it might have been Maybe 40%. 60. Yeah, yeah I think low. I went too low. low. I think thank you, you so much. people to give you, give you money. I, I think you should be more aggressive. <laughs> I'll be meaning to do that for ages. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening. Sarah's book is out now. You can pre-order Robin's new book, Bibliomaniac from the Shamble Shop, very soon. Thanks for supporting us on Patreon if you already do. If you don't already, it's patreon.com slash bookshambles. Rate, review, like five stars on Apple Podcasts. Back next week with another new episode. Until then, take care. Stay safe, stay cool if you possibly can, and bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.